chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 17. 1 through 17. <laughs> now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. And we do pray that um, you would enable us to hear, hear these words this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the first Nicodemus passage. Uh, there's three in the Gospel of John. Uh, one here in chapter 3. He shows up again at the end of chapter 7, um, and then again towards the end of the gospel. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and we know he's a Pharisee, right? He's somebody who has spent his life. The Pharisees are kind of an interesting bunch. Um, they emerge out of the fact that Israel got destroyed, <laughs> that they got wrecked, that Jerusalem and the temple were torn down to the ground, now, imagine that Cordova Church of the Nazarene got torn down to the ground. Where would you all, what would you do? Josh, is, I'm not going to say the name of the place that Josh is pointing to. Uh, <laughs> we would go somewhere else to worship, right? We would either, as a church, we'd all just pick up and go somewhere else, or we would just go find another church. Now, imagine that every church building everywhere was torn down to the ground simultaneously. That's the effect of having the temple in Jerusalem torn and, and destroyed. And so they have to figure out how to worship. They have to find a way to worship God when you don't have the options to worship God in the way that God has said to worship, right? So the Pharisees come out of this. They say, we're going to study. We're going to read the word. 
We're going to learn Torah inside and out. We're going to talk to each other about it. We're going to write down the stuff worth writing down. And then we're going to memorize like all of it. And so the Pharisees are not even priests. They're lay people who sit there and they work with, they soak in the word. They soak in the Torah. They soak in the law. And then as they soak in the law, they're so zealous for it that they take that on to their own life. So they're finding ways every way they can to follow this law, to follow the way, to follow after God. And they're trying to get everybody else to do the same thing. But ultimately, there's still kind of an ignorance. There's a misunderstanding. There's a lack of actual connection with God who they so desire to follow. They can get all the rules, but they can't quite get there to that burning center that they want to reach. Nicodemus sees something in Jesus. He sees something in him that's not like other teachers. It's not like other people. I think he sees that burning center. He comes to him, but, but Nicodemus isn't just any old Pharisee. He's not just somebody who's sitting on the outskirts who doesn't have anything to lose. He's not only a Pharisee who's devoted himself to this kind of learning, but he's also, it says, a ruler of the Jews. Meaning that he's a man of some status. He has something to lose. If he changes teams, and we already know that those within the Jewish establishment are not particularly hot on Jesus. They, he's already in the Gospel of John. He's already gone in and turned the tables over in the temple. He's already created some problems. So he comes to him at night. He comes to him when it's dark out. He comes to him when no one will know. Remember, there's no street lamps. There's no way for anybody to know who Nicodemus is. He's just sneaking through the alleyways on his way to Jesus because he has to find something out about him. But here's the other thing about the Gospel of John is that it actually uses these concepts like light and dark. And it takes them and it takes really simple things, light, dark, seeing, blindness, and John builds whole kind of structures around really simple ideas. And so when he says that Nicodemus, the teacher, the enlightener of Israel, comes to see Jesus at night, he means something by that. He means something that he comes under the cover of darkness to seek out the one who is the light of the world. That he comes under darkness to seek the one who himself was there and created both light and dark. He comes when everybody else is asleep in order to try to wake himself up. Because he sees something in Jesus that is more. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus is performing signs, both miraculous and prophetic. He's living in to what it is to be the Son of God. He's actually kind of stepping in to the very role that Israel had been longing for. And Nicodemus knows that, and yet at the same time knows that he's not supposed to see that in Jesus, but can't deny it. So he comes after him, hoping to get some answers. Jesus does answer him. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, and, and, and we've heard this. How can a man be born again? Right? How can a, an adult? How can even a, I mean, you don't have to be that old before it's too, you're too big to be born again. In fact, you just have to be born once. Once you're born once, there's no going back. Right? There, <laughs> there's no going back. So how, what do you mean born again? All I'm doing, I'm looking around and I'm seeing people who aren't following the law, who aren't living the way they ought to live. I'm looking around and I'm seeing an Israel that is asleep to the truth of the God who loves them and has saved them out of Egypt, brought them into this land, saved them out of Babylon, brought them into this land, and yet they just don't care. They don't care about worship. They don't care about the things that we're supposed to care about as the people of Israel. They don't care about holiness. They don't care about getting free from the stuff that we, that we ought to be free from. They don't care. Nicodemus sees it as a people who are not being faithful in the flesh, right, in their bodies. They're not going where they ought to go with their physical feet, and they're not doing what they ought to do with their physical hands, and they're not praying the way that they ought to pray, because in Jesus' day, there were a lot of groups that thought that we could pray the kingdom into existence. There were people who went out to the desert and lived their lives in caves so that they would be separate from the world, and they could pray God into bringing the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, the new kingdom on this earth now. There's still people like that. That we can be so holy and that we can be so good and that we can follow the rules so well and so tightly and so intensely that in our intensity, God will see us and he'll wipe everybody else out and he'll save us. It's exhausting just saying it, let alone doing it. But that's what Nicodemus wants to see. That's what the Pharisees want to see. And Jesus says, they cannot do it because their spirits are still dead. Right? Yeah, they're born in the flesh, but there's something dead in them that it doesn't matter how hard they try and it doesn't matter how much effort they bring to the task. They are dead. And unless they are born again, unless their spirits are born for the first time or raised to life, then all of that effort is worthless. Because the whole goal and the whole purpose here is that both flesh and spirit would be 
working in harmony, would be working in unison together, that we would be who we are created to be. The purpose of this storyline that we have in Scripture is that people who have been divided and come under the power of death would be freed from it. But that's only going to happen when our spirits are born again. That's only going to happen when the spirit is raised to life. And then the body can follow. Then the good works can follow. Then the prayer can follow. Then all of the stuff that you want to see happen, all, all of the physical manifestations of holiness, all of that can happen once the spirit is raised to life. But if all that you do, and this is part of what Paul is saying in chapter 4 of Romans, if all that you do is try to follow the law itself without raising the spirit, then the law, which is focused on the flesh, it's not bad. In fact, it's good, but it's focused on the flesh. That's its direction. And so if all that you do is try to follow the law, which is focused on the flesh, and ignore the spirit, which needs resurrection and birth in itself, then you have a futile process that you're trying to work out here. You're just struggling after something that you're never going to be able to reach. You've got to be born again. How do you get born again? How can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time to be born? I don't even think moms want that. <laughs> Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you've got to be born of water and of the spirit. Now, there's two meanings here. This is what John does. There are meanings on top of meanings on top of meanings. Okay. So you've got to be born of water. That's a physical birth. That's in the hospital, however many years ago that was for you, okay? Or at home, if you had hippie parents, I don't know. Uh, you know, wherever you were actually born, out of your mother's body, you were born of water, okay? That's one. And then there's got to be this birth from the Spirit. That your spirit, that that thing in you, which I hope is not dead, but may be dead, needs to come alive, needs to be woken up. Whether that's the conscience that is not pricked when you kind of cross the lines. Whether that's the part of you that actually says, I'm made for God's world and not just my own world. Whatever it is, that spirit needs to be woken up and needs to be born anew. Okay? Now, so the body and the spirit. But there's a second meaning which is that we have to be born of water, which is baptism. We are born, when we come into the Christian life, we come in through water. The water or baptism is the sacrament of initiation. It's where we begin our life in Christ. Okay, we're born of the water, but, and we're in this kind of holiness tradition. The Church of the Nazarene is a part of this kind of tradition of Wesleyan holiness, and we talk sometimes about a second work of grace. And it doesn't mean that you're saved again, but it does mean that there's a fullness 
that there's a sort of full grabbing onto the work and the future of God for your life. So that you're born of water and that you come into the faith, you come into the church, you come into the life of Christ. But you're also born of the Spirit where there's this moment of saying, now I'm not just sort of like legally and externally committed to Christ. I am also committed to Christ in all that I am. There is no part of me that I've separated or segregated away from Jesus, away from his church, away from the people of God. All that I am is devoted and committed to him. All that I am is turned over to him. And what I want to do is live in God's world, even now as I live in this one. It's to be born both of water and of the spirit. So how does that happen? <laughs> it's like Jesus says these things and he says them like, okay, well, this is what you do. And then you go, huh? Like, it, you just do that, I guess, right? No, there's like so much more to it. And so what he's going to end up talking about, again, is seeing and not seeing. Nicodemus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You have not seen them. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. We're telling you what we've seen with our own eyes. Jesus is saying, I'm not bearing, I'm not making this up. I'm just relaying what I've already seen and experienced. And this plugs into the second Nicodemus passage at the end of chapter 7. In chapter 7, a man has been healed. Jesus healed a man who was blind. And they bring the man forward. They bring him to this group of Pharisees, these rulers of the Jews. And they're going back and forth. How is it that Jesus could heal this man? Because, again, they're trying to deal with the fact that they see the power of God. They see the signs of God right before them. And yet they can't admit that Jesus is more than just some rogue teacher. And so they're struggling with it. And Nicodemus, they've condemned Jesus. And Nicodemus, it says, speaks up and says, "How doesn't our law tell us that we can't condemn somebody unless we hear them out? Right? And what John is doing, he's playing on this whole image that the Pharisees and everybody around Nicodemus and everybody around Jesus is making judgments about Jesus with actually, without actually seeing what it is that he's done. They're dealing with him in their blindness and claiming to be the people who see clearly. Claiming that they're the ones who have the authority and the power, the wisdom and the, the sight while they make judgments about Jesus that are based on their ignorance, their blindness, and their darkness. And so what is Nicodemus's trajectory? We see him here coming in the dark. Four chapters later, he's starting to come out of it. Can we make a judgment about Jesus until we actually see and hear what it is that he has to say? And John's going to work here in chapter 3. He's going to work with this image of seeing, because yes, it's seeing, it's kind of beholding, right? You don't even try to see. You just open your eyes and it happens. Okay, a lot of times 
Josh and I were here yesterday. We, we, I mean, we kind of done stuff on the stage. We're starting to get stuff set up again. We spent like 10 or 15 minutes looking for this mic stand. We're like, and it was just like boggling our mind. Where could this mic stand be? We're looking in that room. We're looking over here. We're looking in over the house. We run over to Hager Hall. Then we somehow put it there. Like we could not figure out what had happened to this mic stand. And it was right here, directly in front of these drums, but just blending in with this pole that we expected to be there. And I walk in this morning, I'm like, oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's sometimes you don't, you don't see the things that you ought to see because it's just in a slightly wrong place. Right? It's right in front of your eyes, but we're not seeing. We're still blind. And here, Jesus, at the end, what is it that he's going to say? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what happened in the wilderness, it's in the book of Numbers. You can go look it up. Plague had hit the camp of Israelites. Snakes had come in. They were biting everybody. People are dying left and right. Moses asked God, like, man, what am I supposed to do, God? You sent this judgment upon us. We've got snakes all over the place. And God tells him, take some bronze and make a serpent, put it on the top of this pole, lift up the pole, and everybody who looks on the serpent will be saved. All you have to do is look on this serpent that has been lifted up, and you'll be saved from the poison. It works. What is it that saves? Looking. It's, it's looking and seeing. But it's not like a passive kind of looking where, where it just sort of moves in front of your eyes or it's just sitting there right in front of you and you're not quite able to see it. You're looking over it. No, it's that you actually gaze on it. It's that you take it in. That when you see, you also believe. That that thing that has been lifted up in front of you, which we know is a type that's pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who himself becomes like us and is lifted up on the cross, that when we're able to look at him and not just see it, like we've all seen crosses and we've all seen crucifixes with Jesus on the cross, but when we actually see what is happening there, when we see and take in the story and it changes us, because we know that it's not just an image, that it's an event that shifts the very structure of history. Which means that history is not something that's just moving along anymore. Instead, now I'm swept up in what God is doing in the world. That's what the cross means. And so to gaze on it, to see it, is to take it in and believe it. It's to have it change me. It's to have it make me something new. And it begins to shift something in Nicodemus. And only the one who truly sees with the eyes of faith, right? With eyes that say, I'm here to really take this in, to be changed, to be made new. Only that one is going to believe and respond.
whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, John says, that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He goes from telling the story of the Israelites in the desert to reminding everybody reading this gospel, not just Nicodemus, but everybody reading this gospel, that the Son of God has been sent that we might have that life, that we might come into that life, that the power of death that we've been under would itself die, that we would not perish, but that life upon life upon life would be poured out into us. Meaning, and this is what Nicodemus can't understand, it's what he can't wrap his head around, is that God, God is not after a nation of people who are following the rules. God is after a nation of people whose hearts are aflame with love for him, and because they're aflame with love for him, they're following the rules. Because they're so deeply immersed in him and in his presence and in his goodness that they want to throw off all the other things that are holding them, all the other things that determine them, all the other things that give them identity, that tell them who they are, that tell them what to do. And instead we say, let me just have what God has for us. Let me let go of all of that and instead give me God alone. And what Nicodemus can't imagine is that it's God himself who is there in front of him. That he's actually come to him. That God has actually come to Nicodemus and not just called Nicodemus to himself. And we don't get an answer to what happens to Nicodemus in chapter 3. We get a little bit of a hint in chapter 7. But we don't see Jesus saying, and now, Nicodemus, I want to lead you in a prayer. Dear Lord, I love you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I confess my sin, right? That's not what happens. Jesus just leaves it right there. He lets it sit. He lets it settle. He lets it simmer and burn in Nicodemus' life. Let me read you what happens to him. in John chapter 19. Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. His body is hanging on the cross. And it says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus, we don't know how, we don't know when, becomes this secret believer in Christ. Among the Pharisees, among this group of people who are out for Jesus' life. And he follows him and he tracks him from a distance, so much so that when Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus is there on the scene. And he's actually there prepared. He's there with 75 pounds worth of spices. That is tens of thousands of dollars in today's money that he's carrying. That's so much value that he brings. And, and, and it's also way more spice than you ever need to bury somebody. But he brings it to Jesus' body. Lays it out on and with him as they wrap Jesus' body in linens and place it in the garden tomb. Nicodemus goes from being somebody who's in the dark in search of the light, somebody whose spirit itself is still dead. And what we find is that none of us can raise our own spirit. We don't do it with enthusiasm. We don't do it by trying to whip ourselves up and going, I just got to try harder today. Our spirits are born again. We come back to life almost miraculously. It's an act of God in us that we consent to where God says, I am raising your spirit now. And we say, yes, okay, I will allow that. We let God raise us from the dead. Nicodemus lets Jesus do this. His spirit is restored, and we find him not just seeking God out in the dark, but now here he is in the light, bringing down his body publicly, bearing it, becoming somebody who is bound up with the story of Jesus, even when Jesus' story is at its most tragic. Even when Jesus' story has gotten him killed. He's associating with known, executed criminals. I don't know how to describe that, except to say that the fire of God's love has taken over Nicodemus's life. And, and I, I don't know what to say about this exactly. You know, God's... We all want to feel God's love, you know? But we mostly want to feel God's love from a safe distance. I mean, God's love is like the sun. And it's really nice when it's 75 and sunny outside. It's really nice to go out, put on a tank top, and just feel the sun, right? I put sandals on because I lived in San Diego, you know, and I, I get the like winter feet out and hopefully it's, I, I always hope I'm going to get like the nice, a nice little sandal tan. It doesn't happen anymore. It used to happen when I was young and cool. Okay. But we want the sun like at that distance, 93 million miles away and the spring beginning of summer. That's when it feels good. Now when it's 110, I'm not just sitting there feeling the sun on me, 
Some of you might. I don't know. I never got into like sunbathing for its own sake. Because then I'm fried. Then I'm burned. And then the fire of the sun actually hurts me. But the thing is that we are called into God's love. We are called into a depth of intimacy with God that we can't yet imagine. And when you do that, you're not just sitting there 75 and sunny. It's not just God's love when it's kind of warm and sort of nice. It's actually to be called even off the very, I mean, to be called very close to that fire. And to have that fire and that heat actually purify and change you. So that you're willing, like Nicodemus, to be associated with somebody who would be executed. You become a different person because of the heat and the fire of God's love. We get so close, in fact, that it does burn us. We get so close that it consumes us. But like the burning bush, it doesn't burn us up. It fills us without killing us. And so my invitation today is that you would come to the table with the knowledge that we have no life outside the life that God gives us. That we have no hope outside the hope that God gives us. And that your prayer would be that God would fill you with his love, with his flame, and that you would be able to carry that into the world. Let's pray, Lord God. Thank you for the ways loved us. Lord, since you have brought us into this place so that we might be found to respond to